What does it mean to be provided for? To have food on the table, good company by your side, perhaps the ability to depend on and lean into someone else, to let down one's guard and to be held and helped, cherished but challenged. We see story after story throughout Scripture of God's provision, meeting people where they are and changing everything. But those glimpses, those change-everything-about-everything moments that knowing Jesus unlocks, they're woven into our stories too. Threaded when in distress we must desperately depend on God. Bound in those crucibles that require our mindful commitment to boldly believe the real food and nourishment offered us is indeed better than anything else. Thankfully, our good God gave us generously His Spirit to help with the realignment process, to throw out our resource roadmap in exchange for His. So what does provision look like in our lives? Friend, you are in for a treat. Welcome, everybody, to the weekend, and I just want to reemphasize the opportunity for some of you who are able to make it to our campus here at Eden Parade to join us for that class on victorious prayer. Listen, that is our way of connecting with God and learning how to pray victoriously for yourself, for your family, for our community is so crucial, and I know you'll be blessed by that. Well, welcome back to episode three in our season that we're calling provisions. We're talking about how God provides for us. And so in the first episode, we saw that God provides us this gift called faith. In the second episode, Pastor Cal reminded us that God has provided us the opportunity to depend on him. This weekend, we're going to look at God's provision of power, God's power in your life and in my life. But you know, we struggle with this whole concept of power. And what I mean by that is we have a tendency to dismiss God as power and we have a tendency to focus on ourselves as power. So if I draw it out for you in a, in a little cloud, let's say this represents power. There are two kinds of people in the world, right? The haves, okay, those who have power, okay, and the have-nots, all right, those who find themselves feeling kind of powerless, right? I don't have the power I'd like to have. And so the question I want to ask you this weekend is, where do you see yourself? Do you see yourself as somebody who has power, or do you see somebody who doesn't have power and wishes that you have power? I'm guessing that as you listen to this, the majority of us, wherever you are watching right now in the world, feel like we're kind of in both places. What I mean by that is there's a sense in which we do have power by virtue of our position or our accomplishments or our you know, wealth or our capacities. And yet there are areas in our lives where we feel kind of deficient. And the truth is we wish we had a little bit more power. So I'm guessing that's where a lot of us are. Maybe that's where you are right now. You kind of feel like, yeah, I've got some power, but boy, I wish I had more power, which raises a really interesting question, and that is, if you had more power, how would you use it? And I like to believe that we would all say, oh, I would use it for good. 
But Lord Acton, who was a politician and an historian uh, who lived in Britain in about the mid-1800s, he said something that kind of goes against this idea that if we had more power, we would use it for good. You probably have heard this quote before, but it goes like this. Lord Acton said, power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Give you a chance to let that kind of soak in, right? Power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Now, I wish that Lord Acton was wrong, but the reality is what he said is very, very true. All you have to do is look at the graveyard of history and you just see how power has destroyed and ruined lives and and nations. Even Bible history from Genesis to the end of Revelation, we see the problem with power in the world. We see it in characters such as, you know, King David, you know, such a righteous guy, but then power went to his head. Look what happened. Or his son Solomon. Or, you know, in the early church, so many issues that the apostles had to deal with and write about was all about the abuse or misuse of power. And we see it today in the church, in the headlines. We see it in our world. We see what's happening with Russia or with China or the United States. All of our nations, it seemed like, and our leaders become so easily corrupted by power. It is a sad thing. And so what happens is, you know, we look at that and, and we ask ourselves, well, is, is power evil? And the answer to that question is yes, when it's divorced from God. But power in and of itself, when it's in the hands of God, is powerful. It is good. It is necessary. It is something that God has given to use in our lives and to use through our lives. So power when it's in God's hands, it's such a powerful thing that he's given to us to share in and to use for his glory. We just get in trouble when we get that power outside of what God wants to do in our hearts and lives. When we act apart from God, it creates the power vacuum that the enemy comes in and takes a hold of in our hearts and our lives. So how should we understand the power of God and how God wants to use his power in and through us? Well, we're going to answer that question by looking at a story in John chapter 6. We're going to take it apart a little bit, but we're also going to see it as a, a great illustration of God's power. So if you want to follow along, it's a longer passage of scripture, so I'm not going to put it up on the screen, but it's found in the Gospel of John, John chapter 6, and I'm going to start reading at verse 1. Here we go. It says that after this, Jesus crossed over to the far side of the Sea of Galilee, also known as the Sea of Tiberias. A huge crowd kept following him wherever he went because they saw his miraculous signs as he healed the sick. Then Jesus climbed a hill and sat down with his disciples around him. It was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration. Jesus soon saw a huge crowd coming to look for him, Turning to Philip, he asked, where can we buy bread to feed all these people? He was testing Philip for he already knew what he was going to do, what Jesus was going to do. Verse 7, Philip replied, you know, even if we worked for months, we wouldn't have enough money to feed all these people. Then Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. 
There's a young boy here with five barley loaves and, and, and two fish, but you know, what good is that when we're facing such a huge crowd? In verse 10, Jesus said, tell everybody to sit down. So they all sat down on the grassy slopes. The men numbered about 5,000. So, you know, this is a crowd of nearly 15,000 people if you multiply in women and children as well. Then Jesus took the loaves, gave thanks to God, and distributed them to the people. Afterward, he did the same thing with the fish. They all ate as much as they wanted. After everyone was full, Jesus told his disciples, now gather the leftovers so that nothing is wasted. So they picked up the pieces and filled 12 baskets with scraps left by the people who had eaten from the five barley loaves. When the people saw him do this miraculous sign, they exclaimed, surely he is the prophet that we've been expecting. When Jesus saw that they were ready to force him to be their king, he slipped away into the hills by himself. Now, this is one of the miracles that Jesus did that is reported in all four Gospels. Other than the resurrection, this is the only other miracle that's reported by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It was well attested to. Everybody knew about it. In fact, if you think about this for a moment, the first Gospel appears about 40 years after Jesus' life here on this earth. So there would have been plenty of folks still around at that time who could have refuted this miracle as it was written in the gospel. I mean, they could have said, ah, yeah, what, what the apostle wrote there is not true. I was there that day. I was a kid. I was a teenager. And, you know, maybe there were 50 people, but there was no multiplication, no miracle. But not one person out of all those thousands of people ever spoke up or ever said that's not true. Everybody knew it. And everybody experienced this profound miracle of God. Now remember, those miracles were there to point to who he is, the Son of God. Jesus doesn't do miracles just for the sake of doing miracles. They had to point to something. So he used his power to multiply the fish and the bread to point people to who he was. That is, he is indeed the Son of God the one that God promised who would come and save men and women from the sins of this world. So let's talk a little bit about this power of God. And we'll go up here and we'll, we'll put our bubble. And now we're not talking about human power, but we're talking about the power of God, okay? If you really want to understand the power of God, all right, which you know, you'll never totally grasp, one of the great passages to look at is found in the book of Ephesians and chapter 1, beginning at verse 18. I, I want to read it to you. Here's what it says. Paul's writing, it says, I pray that your hearts will be flooded with light so that you can understand the confident hope that he has given to those he called his holy people who are his rich and glorious inheritance. Imagine that. God, God sees you and me as his rich and glorious inheritance. Verse 19, he says, I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe him. 
This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. Now, I want to focus on Paul's phrasing for this great mighty power. He uses this Greek uh, term. It is hyperbalon, all right, followed by megathos dunamis. Now, I'm not trying to impress you with my Greek, but hyperbalon, all right, megathos dunamis transliterated is hyperbolistic megatomic dynamite, okay? And that's how Paul pictures the power of God. It's profound. You know, they say that um, a nuclear warhead is one one-thousandth of the power of an entire hurricane. And that a hurricane is one billionth of the power of an eruption on the sun, which is a really small star, And God holds it all like a marble between his fingers because it was out of God's power that he spoke everything into being, everything into creation. That's who God is. He is the all-powerful one. And with that power, he does great and mighty things things for you and for me. So let's draw this out, okay? We have God's great power, and we know that God used his power to create the heavens and everything in the heavens, right? The heavenly beings, angels, etc. He used his power to create the earth, and in particular, on that earth, he created the man, and he created the woman, all right? We've talked about this before. And God shares his power with them, and God says, partner with me, depend on my power, and rule my, my earthly creation. It was an invitation to partner with his power. And Adam and Eve, unlike you and me, I, I believe that there, there was something about them that was so powerful. They had a power that, that we don't know in our lives prior to the rebellion against God. And that takes us then to, you know, the serpent that we've oftentimes talked about who shows up and says to them, hey, why don't you guys become the first power couple in history? You don't need to depend on God's power. You could be your own source of power. And those dots represent ever since then the struggles that we've been dealing with. Now, God could have then used his power, right, to terminate humanity. But God doesn't. God takes his awesome power, and as we read the scriptures, God uses that power to what? To save and rescue humanity, to save and rescue you and me. What does that look like? Well, let's draw it out again. Think about God's power, okay? that great power that we've described, right? That hyperbolistic, megatomic dynamite of God, God's power. And what he does is he condenses all of that power down and places it into the womb of a teenage girl. You know, sometimes we think of power as big, as huge, You know, some of the most powerful things you can't even see with your eyes. And so God places his great power in the womb of this this little virgin, this girl. Talk about a vulnerable place. Talk about being Mary and knowing you. I mean, I'm sure she didn't understand the, the concept that she's carrying around the power that created the universe. 
This is how God acts, and it's just exciting about God. You can't make this stuff up. This is the power of God at work. And what happens is nine months later, the power emerges, right? And grows up and becomes who we know as what? As Jesus, God in the flesh. And he begins to administer the power of God. Well, how does he administer the power of God? We think about it in terms of what is known as the gospel. The gospel is the power of God. And he's going to use this power to change hearts and lives. There's a wonderful passage of scripture that picks this up. It's found in Romans chapter 1. Listen to what it says. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of this good news, that's the gospel, about Christ. It is the dunamis, the dynamite of God at work, saving everyone who believes. The Jew first and also the Gentile. Hey, this is good news. It tells us how God makes us right in his sight. So power that God could have used to destroy us, God uses that power in his son to save us, to rescue us, to bring us back into a right relationship with himself. Isn't that exciting? Who God is and what God has done for you and for me. Well, how does the power of, how does the, power of the gospel work? Well, let's go back to our story. Jesus asks Philip, he says to him, you know, where can we get food for all these people? Around 15,000 people. And, and he says, look, uh, we could work for months and not have enough money to buy food for everybody. And then Andrew pipes up and he goes, well, I've got this, uh, I got this little boy here. He's got, you know, uh, five barley loaves, which was the bread of the poor. And don't think of like a big loaf. You know, just like a tiny little loaf, right? A piece of bread. He's got five of those. He's got two sardines. And it's almost like Andrew kind of laughs and says, but you know, I mean, that and look at all these people. How on earth are we ever going to feed them? How on earth are we ever going to do it, right? It's like, yeah, this isn't going to work. And um, as you think about that picture and you think about Philip and you think about Andrew, where is their focus, huh? Their focus is on the hugeness, the hugeness of this problem. It's a massive problem. But let me ask you this question. Where is Jesus' focus? His focus is on the opportunity. What a great opportunity to show and multiply the power of God. As you look at your life right now, and you think about what you're facing, what's ahead of you, both personally, relationally, in this world that we live in right now, how do you feel about it? How do you see it? Do you see it as this big, huge problem? Or do you see it as, wow, this is a great opportunity for God to glorify himself and for God to just show his great power. And, and he wants to do that in you and he wants to do that through you as well. That's who God is. And that's why he has you in those circumstances right now. It's an opportunity for him to demonstrate his great power, his strength. You know, it says in the passage that we were reading, that it was almost the time of the Passover, and this, that's not there by accident. 
Remember the Passover is where God demonstrates his power and he delivers what? He delivers Egypt, I'm sorry, Israel through Moses from the hands of Egypt and the Pharaoh. And then God takes them with this leader Moses into the wilderness where they face terrible odds. I mean, they're in the wilderness, tens of thousands of them. Uh, I will sneeze, excuse me, hundreds of thousands of them. And what happens there in that moment? They're like, where are we going to get our food? Where are we going to get our water? And what does God do? He brings water out of a rock in one instance. And he provides food for them. Every day, manna to eat. And you know, it says in Deuteronomy chapter 18 that Jesus said through Moses that one day he would come like Moses. It says there a passage, literally, Moses says there will be a prophet, capital P, who will appear one day. You have to do what he says. It was the Lord who was inspiring Moses to say that. Now the Lord who inspired him to say that actually shows up in the flesh. You know, people are asking John, who are you? And John said in chapter 1, about verse 45, he says, I'm not the prophet. Jesus is the prophet. Now standing for the people is the prophet, priest, and king. And he's saying, I provided manna in the wilderness. I'm now providing you a food. And next weekend, I'm going to share with you exactly what Jesus meant when he said, I am the bread of life. Take and eat my flesh. Sounds weird. There's something very intimate and very powerful about that, and I don't want you to miss it next weekend when we talk about that, all right? So, but, but for now, you know, the question becomes, okay, what, is, what does this all mean for you and for me? How does this apply into our hearts and our lives? And I want you to picture with me Jesus, all right? And he's there with his followers, Right? And he takes that simple little meal of some bread and some fish. And what does he do? He prays and he thanks God for it and he multiplies it. Now, I want to ask you a question before we move into three practical applications of this story. I want you, I want you to kind of look at your hands for a moment, all right? Right where you are at our campus, at our venue, on your own, with your family, around the world, wherever you are. And I just want you to look in your hands. I want you to imagine, I want you to imagine what you have. All right, what, what do you have in your life? Things, possessions, relationships, money, whatever it is. And let me ask you a question. Are you willing to let Jesus take it? Are you willing to let him take it? Until we allow him to take it, he can't multiply it. He can't use it. So it has to be an open and say, God, here's my life. And that takes us to three very important principles. Here's the first one. You cannot know or experience the power of God until you own your own powerlessness. Now, I want you to personalize it. Say it out loud. Even if you're by yourself, just say it out loud. I cannot know or experience the power of God until I own my powerlessness. Until I own my powerlessness. It's so crucial. It is so important. It is significant that you and I come to grips with how powerless we really are or we're never going to experience God's 
power. We'll always be wrestling. You know, when you think about that little boy who was standing there with his two fish and five pieces of bread, it is the picture of insignificance, isn't it? And it's the picture of insufficiency. I mean, who is this little boy? I mean, he's just a kid. Remember that story in the Gospels where the the parents bring their children, they want Jesus to pray with their children, and the disciples say, no, 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 don't bother the master with these kids. I love, Jesus tells his disciples to stop it. (laughs) He says, I want these little kids to come here because you guys have to become like those kids if you want to be in my kingdom. Maybe right now you're looking at what I asked you to see in your hands. And you're thinking to yourself, I, you know, what I have is so insignificant. It is so insufficient. You know, we've been talking about our vision, leaving a legacy of hope. And how we're going to impact the people around us at our, our campuses. About 300,000 folks, so many families that are struggling, that are feeling hopeless. How can we bring them the hope of God's love and good news? Not just in word, but in, in practical ways. And, and how are we going to reach, you know, and plant 30,000 churches in a part of the world where less than 1% of the people are believers? There are 300,000 villages in the region that we're looking at where there still is no gospel witness. How is it that we're going to be able to plant 30,000 churches there in the next 10 years? I don't know about you, but I look at that and I go, we're so insignificant. We're so insufficient. But that's okay. God says, give me your insignificance. Give me your insufficiency and look what I am going to do. It's a really important principle. Listen, the more powerless you see yourself, You know what happens? The more powerful you're going to see God and God is going to work. I was reading about a a social psychologist. Her name is Amy Cuddy, C-U-D-D-Y. And um, she's kind of well known for writing on and doing uh, seminars on on power posing. And, and, And in other words, how we present ourselves can bring us power. It can give us influence over other people. And so she teaches these ways to kind of present your body and to have power over others. And, you know, three of the ways is, is, is first of all, an open kind of stance, confrontive stance like this, right? When you're in front of people speaking or in front of your team, you know, a stance like this projects power, right? And, and, and some people will kind of submit to that power. Or she says, you know, having your hands raised above your head, all right, as you're talking or speaking, presents power. Or she says, you know, like when you're sitting down at a chair, put your hands behind your head, right, and cross your legs, that, or, or legs open, just projects that sense of power, right? And so I was thinking to myself, well, if that's how humans project power, how, do, how does the power of God get projected? How is a believer supposed to project power? And when I thought about that, I thought about this pose. Maybe you've seen this pose. Maybe you've practiced this pose before. It's called kneeling. It's called kneeling. And you know who modeled this power pose? Jesus. And he models it in John 13 when he gets on his knees and he washes the filthy feet of his disciples. And then he tells them what? He says, this is your pose in life. I want you to do this for each other. And I want you to go and do this for others as well. 
When's the last time you got on your knees and submitted to the Lord, confessed your powerlessness to him, and asked him to take whatever you have and use it for his glory and his praise and for his honor? Let's look at a second practical principle, and that is this. You cannot know or experience the power of God until you place everything you have in his hands. However little, however much. I'm not going to know the power of God until I place those things in his hands. Notice that when Jesus gets the bread and the fish, he thanks his Father. You know, so oftentimes we look at what's in our hands and we complain that it's not enough, that it's insufficient. And we never see God multiply blessings. Can I challenge you as I'm challenging myself right now to look at whatever you have in your hands and stop complaining about it? I'm talking to myself as much as to you. Stop complaining about it and start thanking God for it. And watch how God multiplies that in your life because you have the right attitude, you have the right spirit, you're showing an example of thanksgiving. God doesn't need a lot. He just needs you to surrender. Here's the key. The key is placing what you have in his hands with a thankful spirit and then letting go and trusting what God's going to do with it. As we've been asking you to pray about legacy of hope, you may feel like you have so little to offer God. That's okay. God only wants you to offer him what you can and watch what he's going to do with it. Third and final principle, and that's this. You cannot know and experience the power of God until you place your whole life in his hands. Your whole life in his hands. God wants every ounce of you. He doesn't want you to just simply give him things. He wants you and me to place ourselves in his hands and watch what he can do. In other words, God wants us to be obedient to him with his power in mind, how he can use our obedience with his power. God God wants you and me to understand that his power is not against us. His power is for us, for you. Romans chapter 8, Paul says, Greater is he that is in me. He's in the world that through him I can do all things. He strengthens me with his power. I think about Jesus in John chapter 19, and we're going to cover this story later on in our series and he's standing before Pilate, and he's quiet. And Pilate says, why don't you say something? Don't you know I have the power to release you or the power to have you crucified? And Jesus looks at him, and he says, you'd have no power at all except that my Father has given it to you. And it serves his purpose to put me on the cross. He didn't say that, but that's the implication, to save this world. Or how can we forget those words of the Apostle Paul who in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 tells God three different times in prayer about this weakness in his life and he begs God to remove the weakness and finally God says to him these words. He says, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. In weakness. Now I want to 
apply this for us by sharing with you a story of some of our dear global partners. And Whitdale's blessed to have awesome global partners. I want to tell you the story of Eric and Tracy, Sam and Simon Hegman. You may not know them, that's okay. They're a wonderful family. But I tell you what, life wasn't easy when they really first started out. Their son, Simon, was born at 22 weeks. He weighed barely over a pound. His skin was translucent. All the parts were there. You could see the organs, the 10 fingers, the 10 toes, and nobody expected him to live. He was so tiny, he could literally fit the hands of his mom and his dad. Well, what I want you to know is that Simon spent the first two years of his life in the hospital. Can you imagine? He struggled and ebbed between life and death. He had three heart attacks, all kinds of medication, all kinds of wires and tubes and things hooked up to his body. But his dad and mom and brother believed believed that God had placed him in their hands for a reason, and they prayed, and they cried, and they struggled in those years. But you know what? Eric and Tracy kept coming back to Isaiah chapter 41, verse 10, which says, Fear not, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you, and I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Imagine that. Here's this little child in their hands, and God is saying, hey, it's okay. I've got all of you in my hand. After two years of being in the hospital, they finally took Simon home with a ventilator. He couldn't survive without it, and all kinds of contraptions. And his brother Sam used to love holding him, even with all the wires you know, around him. Wanted him to go places with them, and so they would pack everything up. And it was a lot to, to be able to go out together as a family. Well, I'm going to speed the story forward, okay, uh, to about the year 2001. Uh, Simon is finally getting better, and, and he's outgrowing these things, and, and, and things are starting to finally work in his life. And God has just been so faithful. And by the way, uh, the New York Times did a, a front page story on his little life, calling him the miracle baby. And it's at that point that Eric and Tracy sense that God is calling them to go overseas and give their lives to share Christ with other people in a very practical way. Can you imagine that? I mean, all you've been through now, God, is laying your heart to uproot and go somewhere far away. Again, they trusted God. They placed their lives in his hands, and they went to Nairobi, there in Kenya, Africa. I'm not going to go into all the details, but they eventually founded a ministry there called Heshema, which is Swahili for dignity. And this ministry that they developed that's going still to this very day is meant to reach out and minister to those families who live in slums, who are in poverty, who have children with special needs, provides medical and physical therapy and education for them. 
And God is using it to touch those who one would think are untouchable. God's using it in a profound way. Speed ahead to 2021 and all that God has been doing with Heshema. Do you know that um, as a result of that ministry and the impact it's had on the lives of their own children, that Sam now has uh, graduated. He's a doctor. He's married. He has a, a child and wants to go back to Africa and wants to minister using medicine. But listen to this. Simon, don't forget, Simon, who was born barely over a pound, he's now the pastor of Heshema. And this guy who has been through so much is being used by God as he pastors those kids and their families. You know, this uh, past uh, fall, he was actually here and he spoke to our kids. And even though he cannot read or write much beyond the elementary level and he's not always easy to understand, the kids were mesmerized as he spoke. And I just think about this beautiful family. And to me, they are a living witness of what it means to put your faith and your trust in God's hands and see what God does with what seems so insufficient and insignificant to change people's lives. Can I ask you a question? What's in your hands? Who is in your hands? Are you willing to place yourself, your children, your finances, your career, your health, your whole life in his hands? And say, God, here's my life. You know, I so wished this weekend that I could have, you know, given you some bread and fish as a reminder of this powerful story. And then I thought to myself, well, I can do this. So at our campuses, right, our venues, when you leave today, you're going to get a little bag of goldfish. It's kind of bread. Well, not quite fish, but you get the picture. And I don't want you to take that and starve it down right away. I want you to take that, and I want you this week to keep it out where you see it. I want you to frequently place it in your hands. And I want you to think about that miracle that Jesus did. And I want you to think about what God has placed in your hands. And I want to challenge you to offer it to God with a spirit of thanksgiving and say, Lord, here's everything you've given me. Lord, here's my life. As you multiply the fish and the bread, God, multiply the blessings in my life, multiply my life to bring change here, near, and far. And watch what God does. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness and grace in our lives. Thank you for the miracle of multiplication in our lives. Thank you for infusing the power of Christ the gospel to change our lives. Now, Lord, here's our lives. Take and use our lives. Take and use our things. Take and use our gifts, our abilities, our wealth for your glory. We present it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. I'll see you next weekend.